If I could tell a newcomer one thing that I believe is the most important thing that a newcomer needs to learn when they first walk into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it is that alcohol is not your problem. There is a spiritual malady. There is a hopeless state of mind and body. There are a set of character defects, pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth, all based in fear. A hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity. The fact that I was maladjusted to life in full flight from reality in an outright mental defective. Those are the reasons that I drank, not because I liked the taste of alcohol. If I could say one thing, Alcohol's not your problem. It's the noise that lives between my left ear and my right ear. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Yowza, yowza, yowza. You know, I really have no idea what that means, but that phrase popped into my head right before I started recording. (laughs) Nonetheless, that was the voice, ladies and gentlemen, of Rick W., that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this episode coming out to you right here, right now, is brought to you by Rebecca and Catherine and Tiffany. Do you know what Rebecca and Catherine and Tiffany did? Well, let me tell you. They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you, Miss Rebecca, Catherine, and Tiffany. This episode is coming right out to you and your generous heart. I John M. will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. Listening in, So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started because this is Sober Speak, a meeting between meetings at your fingertips. All right. Um, I want to share with you, first off, a couple of things that were posted in the secret Facebook group. And the first one here is from Jen. Jen posted in the Facebook group. She said, wow, going to take this as a little hello from God. I was out for a walk 
in listening to episode number 146. That's the previous episode right before this one. I walked past a stairwell and thought I could use the exercise. I started up the stairs. Just then, Matthew M. talked about the steps and how there were 12 steps leading to a sponsor's house and how the first 11 steps teach you how to do the most important step. So, I counted the steps as I was walking. The stairwell had alternating floors of 11 and 12 steps, exclamation point. So thank you, God, for another day of sobriety, double hearts. Well, thank you, Jen, for posting that in there. And thank you, Matthew M., for coming in and uh, recording an episode with us. Uh, is fantastic. Gary K. Yes, the same Gary K. that you know here are from the uh, from the podcast. He posted in the secret Facebook group. He said, "Quote the simplicity of." This is from, by the way, Dr. Bob. It's a quote from Dr. Bob. Quote, it starts off in the middle of a sentence. It says, the simplicity of our program. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual work. I love that. Let me read that again. Once again, this is from Dr. Bob, and this is from his farewell address. I just happen to know that. And it starts out, it talks about the simplicity of our program. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual work. Thanks for posting that in there, Mr. Gary K. I do appreciate it. All right, now on to our featured speaker, featured guest. This this one, this one we are calling Insanity Doesn't Have an Expiration Date. Rick, my new friend, has been sober sober for nearly 33 years, and he addresses long-term sobriety and how it is not always a walk in the park. And I want to warn you that there are some things in this uh, particular episode that are, uh, whether mature subject matter, I'll put it that way. They may give you some pause. And if that is the kind of subject matter you don't like, you can pause now and go or stop now and go listen to any of the other uh, episodes that we have. But Rick is, and I love it, he's very vulnerable regarding his past. And we venture into some dark places. We talk about Rick's last drunk, and it is quite a story. As Rick describes it, he was a lying, cheating, thieving whore, and he ended up in quite a predicament. We discuss Rick's experience uh, in AA as a gay man, and he discusses his experience in what he calls both gay AA and straight AA. And one more thing I want to point out to you, uh, just like SoberSpeak is a free resource for those in recovery, Rick has created a free resource as, as well. It's a website and it can be found at www.takethe12.org and 12 is just the numbers, one, two. So www.takethe12.org and on that website, you'll find step studies, 
tradition studies, uh, concept studies, and much more, I really do suggest you check out the website. It's absolutely fantastic. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I turn you over to Mr. Rick W. And keep in mind, we'll have plenty of listener feedback on the other side of this. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Rick W. So Mr. Rick W., I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to go ahead, introduce yourself and give your sobriety date if you so wish. Absolutely. Thank you, John. My name is Rick W. And my sobriety date is November 17th, 1987. 1987. I believe then you're coming up on 33 years. Is that right? Yeah, right around the corner. My goodness. One day at a time. <laughs> right. It's uh, God's been good to us, hasn't he? Yeah, and uh, it's, it's wild. Guys like me and you, we think about it. I remember I used to think about people that even had like a year and think that wasn't even possible. And um, we're going to talk today about what it was like for what you were like, what happened, and what you are like now. I always think about, well, where do I want to start? Right, right. And so I'm going to ask you a question on the front end here. Like, okay, you've been sober for quite some time now, for, for 33 years. And I'm assuring, I'm assuming it's just been all peachy keen the entire time. Am I right? <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so can you share with the audience, I don't know, anything that may have happened over your time in sobriety that may be uh, interesting for them? So the most the most interesting thing that has happened to me in my sobriety i've been given many opportunities to do service and i'm very very grateful for that but one of the coolest opportunities that i've ever had when i was living in new york city i lived in new york city for 14 years um i had the opportunity to speak at an event that New York Intergroup does every year to honor Bill Wilson's sober date. Um, they call it the Bill Wilson Dinner. It's their big fundraiser that they do every year. Um, generally has uh, between 1,800 and 2,000 people at it, black tie, formal, uh, and it's just an amazing event. And I had the privilege in 2012 to be the closing speaker at that dinner. And I remember standing in front of 2000 people thinking, how is this my life? Wow. It was, it was cool. It was, wow. it was a privilege. Wow. What, what an interesting, uh, like you said, what, what a privilege to be able to do something like that. That's fantastic. What about if you experienced any sort of, uh, I guess, uh, insanity over your 33 years? <laughs> uh, no, none. Absolutely none. Um, yeah. So I share this. I, one of the things that my sponsor tells me on a regular basis, well, not a regular basis, but has told me that he, one of the reasons he loves sponsoring me is because I always tell on myself. And I do believe that people with long-term sobriety have, can have the most impact on the newcomer whenever they're willing to stand up in front of a group of people and share their truth, whatever that truth is, no matter how ugly it is. And I was um, on a business trip and I was 29 years sober. I was on a business trip in New York and I was staying in a hotel, nice hotel, uh, beautifully appointed, had all the amenities that every business traveler would need. One of the things that it had was a coffee maker in the room. And I'm a big coffee drinker. That's one thing that I have kept in my sobriety. And um, one morning I woke up and went to shuffle over to the coffee pot 
and went to try to make my coffee and it was broken and it, the coffee maker wouldn't work. And I don't know about you, but that's a big deal. Right. Right. So I put my clothes on, went downstairs and went to the front desk and I said, so can you tell me where the nearest Starbucks is? And she said, yes, if you walk out the door and go down the sidewalk, turn left, go two blocks, turn right. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a Starbucks on every corner. Why am I not close <laughs> right. to one? But what I said to her was, thank you. So I walked out. And just as I walked out the hotel, I right next to the hotel I was staying in was a Hampton Inn. And I don't know if you've ever stayed in a Hampton Inn or not. But in every Hampton Inn, in their lobby, they have what? Yes. Free coffee. That's right. And I saw it through the window and... My insanity said, go in there and get a cup of coffee. So I did. I walked into the, I walked into that lobby, poured myself a cup of coffee in a to-go cup, put milk and sugar in it, put a top on it and turned around and walked out that door just like I was staying at that hotel. 29 years sober. And I walked down to the end of the block, turned right and went in and got another cup of coffee at another coffee shop that I saw, ended up throwing that one away. But as I was coming back to my hotel, to go up to my room, I heard a voice and that voice said, son, you got to make this right. So I went back to the hotel, to the Hampton Inn. I walked up to the front desk and I said, I need to speak to the manager. And she said, sure, may I ask what this is in regards to? And I said, yes, I need to make an amends to her. <laughs> she had this very weird look on her face. And I said, and she went, oh, okay. So, and she started typing, what room number are you in? And I said, Oh, I'm not staying here. And she had another weird look on her face. <laughs> and she goes, so she went and got the manager and the manager came out and I explained the story I just explained to you. And I said, and I, and I'm, and I need to introduce myself. My name is Rick and I'm an alcoholic. And I said that to her and she had a kind of a strange look on her face. And, and I said, the reason I'm telling you this is because in my program, in my program of action, one of the things that I know I'm supposed to do is to admit when I've caused hurt and harm and to um, be rigorously honest. And so I told her what I had done and I reached into my pocket to pull out two bucks to hand her to pay for the coffee. And she said, oh, no, I can't take your money. And I said, oh, yes, you're going to take my money. I said, I don't care if you give it to the front desk clerk or the right. homeless person out on the sidewalk. I don't care. Um, but... She smiled and she thanked me for my honesty. And as I was walking out the door of that hotel, the thought hit me and I'd never thought this before. Insanity doesn't have an expiration date. Mm. And that has stayed with me. And I tell that story as often as I can, because I do believe that for people with long-term sobriety, it's important for us to tell on our illness, whenever it acts up, regardless of whether I'm 29 days sober or 29 years sober. Right. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to have a lot of people listening right now going, Ooh, should I have not done that? <laughs> Everyone's kind of checking their own conscience right now. I can guarantee you. So this is a question I ask a lot of the folks that uh, come on the podcast and uh, I'm always curious about this. Did you, have you, did you think of a time or have you ever considered a time or do you know of a time, excuse me, when you figured out that you were an alcoholic? Was there some sort of turning point for you in your life? So 
I have listened to a lot of speakers on your podcast, and I know that you ask that question or often ask that question. And and I'll be very honest with you. When I heard that and I started thinking about it for myself, I it became really clear to me that I don't know the answer to that question. Um, actually, that's not true. Most people or a lot of people that I have heard in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous can cite chapter and verse about that moment that they knew that they were an alcoholic, or even what that first drink felt like when they took it. It's not my case. Um, I actually didn't real, and I, as I was thinking about this, I didn't realize that I was an alcoholic really until I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that there were some thoughts, maybe that there was some insanity in my life, um, that every time I drank, I wound up in literally in strange places with strange people in strange positions. I mean, (laughs) there were consequences from my drinking, but I, I don't ever thought, I don't think that I ever put two and two together to say, oh, it's because you're an alcoholic. It just never occurred to me on that level until I got to AA and you showed me exactly what an alcoholic was. Mm. So let's go back a little. We, we kind of started in your sobriety, right? But let's, let's go back a little to Rick as, as a kid and mm-hmm. you know what made you, where you came from, uh, what you're all about. Can you give me a thumbnail sketch of everything that happened – of what you were like leading up to coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. So um, I've been around AA long enough to know that there, the, what I'm about to say to you is not, um, not atypical. That's right. There are others that have experienced this. A large part of my, a large part of my childhood is black. I simply just don't remember most of my childhood, most of my adolescence. It's just gone. Now, whether that is as a result of my alcoholism or is that whether that's a result of some psychic trauma or whatever, I don't know. I have done a lot of therapy (laughs) around a lot of things, but um, there there were a lot of things that informed certainly my adulthood. One of them was some child abuse, some physical abuse, some sexual abuse. When I was a child, um, I was raped. How old were you? Probably uh, not sure of the math, but if I were to guess, I would say seven, eight, nine around in there, something like that. I was raped repeatedly by a, um, uh, a family member. Uh, an extended family member. And that created some psychic damage in my life that was to live with me for many, many years. So I'm thinking that a lot of my darkness, my blackness of my childhood and my adolescence came as a result of that. But I don't remember a lot. I remember a few good things. I remember a few moments Um, I can, but I just don't remember a lot about my childhood. I would say that um, my childhood was, well, I came from an alcoholic home. Um, my my mother who is, or my, yeah, my mother who is deceased now, um, 
I can't say she was an alcoholic because it's not my right to say that, but I can tell you that she was powerless over alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, My father drank, but never to the, at least in my memory, never to the degree that she did. Um, But I remember a lot of pain and suffering. I remember a lot of fights and I remember a lot of, we used to call my mother, um, my brother would come home or my mother would come home from work at night and my brother would be out playing and I was always the guy that stayed in the house. Um, my mother would come in and say, go find your brother. And I would go find my brother. And I would, the word we used or the phrase we used was tornado Dixie is home. We called her tornado Dixie. (laughs) Uh, Her name was Dixie. And, uh, so I, that's kind of what I remember about my childhood. My mom and dad divorced when I was 11 and my dad remarried pretty quickly after that to a woman that he's still married to today, who I love and adore. And you grew up here in Texas, right? I did. I grew up, I was born in Wichita Falls, Texas, but I grew up here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. A year after I was born, we moved here. And you said you had some brother, you had at least one brother? That's correct. I had, my, my dad and my mother had, I'm adopted. I was adopted before I was born. Um, uh, my Two years after they adopted me, they had my brother. Then when my dad divorced, um, he married a woman that had two kids as well. So now there's four of us. So, you know, I just got to be honest with you. I I keep, you saw me physically react when you talked about being raped at seven and eight years old. And, you know, I, I, Oh gosh, I just you know I, I I feel for you. I I I never experienced anything like that. So you, when did that? When did you start to I, I guess deal with that? Was it after sobriety? It was after sobriety. In fact, in fact, I was five years sober before I even began to have any recall of it at all. Wow, I, it was completely dark. Um, And the only reason that I I don't know this to be true, but I believe it to be true is that um, I was living with a dear friend of mine in the fellowship in Nashville, Tennessee. I was living in Nashville at the time, and uh, she was walking through her own memories of her abuse. And I'm assuming that walking through that with her and being there to support and love her um, triggered stuff in me as well. So for all those years, you no just clue. didn't even think about No it. clue. And what's interesting is, is that when I look back on it, um, and the, the perpetrator um, was my uncle. Um, when I look back on it, and I look back on the relationship that I had with him m- as a child, um, he was a, tr- the best way to describe him was he was a beer drinking, big, bellied truck driver and just kind of every visual that you have that goes along with that was him. Um, but he, and, and he never, ever, ever liked me in front of the rest of the family, except for he would, it's very odd that I am saying this, but he would fawn all over me like, Oh my God, isn't Rick wonderful. Um, look at all he's accomplishing as a child. I mean, as a child, what was I accomplishing? But he's so smart. He's so talented, all of that, but he was not doing that to his kids or to any other, the other kids in the room. And I never understood why that he was giving me special attention. But every time he did something inside of me bristled, um, and today, I know it's because of what was going on in the background. See, so in alive. the dark, 
Is he still alive? He is not. He passed away just a couple of years ago. So a couple of years ago, did yeah. you ever get to have any sort of conversation with I him? I did not. I did not. I have talked to him. I did talk to him right before he passed. When my mother, his sister, passed away, um, I talked to him for the first time in probably 30 years. And um, I could talk to him on the phone. I was still living in New York City at the time. And it was a very civil conversation. It only lasted about 15 minutes, but it was very civil. But the cool part about it was as a result of the spiritual principles that I've learned in this program, forgiveness was one of them. And I forgave him many years ago. I've done a lot of work, as I said, in therapy on this, but I was able to forgive him and realize that even though there were moments where I was, I felt pleasure from it, even though it was a horrible experience. Anytime you physically stimulate a body, it's going to provide pleasure. And that created an enormous amount of confusion, right? For a small child. Um, I was able to, I was able to surrender all of that and, and I was able to forgive him. So when I talked to him on the phone, when his sister had died, it was a beautiful conversation. And I was able to allow him the space to grieve his, the loss of his sister and give him whatever information I could. But I carry today. I carry no ill will toward that man. None. I did for years though. And I drank at it a lot, I bet. a lot. All right. So let me, let me go ahead and do a little, um, Metro announcement here. Uh, we will be continuing our conversation with Rick W. In just, a rem- in just a moment, just a reminder, you are listening to Soberspeak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at Soberspeak.com. There you can also find the donate button on our website if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. You can use that. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Soberspeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Rick W. Before we started this podcast, you talked a little bit about your uh, the the business that you're involved in. And, and, and what I'm interested in is, is what you talked about, about how you have had to learn to step into step three, if you will, because of this COVID-19 crisis and what it's meant to you and your business. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, So I started my own business 21 years ago and working for myself. I had been working in various industries and walked away from it to start my own business in February of 1999. And because I realized Years at a very young age, I was put on this earth to be a teacher. I I, don't, I think there are very few people who come to this planet and stay here for any length of time with a clear idea about why they're here. Why Why did God bring me here? I know. I I feel like I'm one of those very few people who know why they're here, which is to be a teacher. Now I went to college, or excuse me, I started an undergraduate degree to get my degree in education, but never finished and never, ever really truly started, but went to several college or went to a couple of colleges and junior college to try to see if I couldn't get that, that degree started, but never finished, um, primarily due to my disease. 
Um, it just wasn't a priority. Um, but I never lost the desire to teach. And so fast forward to February of 99, I knew that I needed to have joy in my life. And I knew that teaching brought me joy. So I started a business where I am basically a corporate trainer, uh, corporate facilitator. I do a lot of uh, training and development for uh, companies, 501c3, not-for-profit, professional trade associations, that kind of thing. Um, so fast forward to today, um, I've been very successful in 21 years financially, was able to make it through the trials and tribulations of 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis really didn't affect me at all. I was very blessed. Um, This pandemic has wiped me out. And for the first time in 30, well, 32 years of being sober, I have... Um, had to develop a whole new relationship with step three that I am convinced that this trust that I have in a power greater than myself will not only restore me, but will sustain me. Um, I have the, when it first, when I saw in the beginning of March of two of 2020 this year, saw one third of my annual revenue go off my calendars I began to freak out and I'm not a fearful guy by nature and by practice. I'm not a fearful guy. I'm not an angry guy. I'm not a rageful guy. Um, I'm not a hateful guy, but in that moment for 48 hours, when it, when I saw it going, all of my money going away, I went into what is the four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I I went there and I lived there for 48 hours. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And then on day three, something happened and a shift occurred. And, and I, I don't know that I heard a voice, but I felt a voice. I I felt God saying to me, dude, I have this. I have this. All you need to do is trust. And so from that moment, almost three months later, to this moment, I have not had one iota of fear. Um, I just, you know, a new, a completely new relationship with step two and, and step three, but certainly step three, trust and belief and faith in a power greater than myself. I don't know what this is going to look like when it's all done, but I, keep, I, I joke with people lately that likely... Yeah, when the dust settles, I may just be an Uber driver. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I don't know. We'll see. Who knows? But it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Is there something, is there an incident, is there a time that prompted your entree into Alcoholics Anonymous? So I, I'm one of those people who never... I don't know that I even knew what Alcoholics Anonymous was before, really, before coming to the rooms. I had a vague understanding of it. Um, it certainly was not a part of my family, um, any of my friends. I So I didn't really know anything about it. But I, uh, so I didn't come to AA because I thought I had a drinking problem, I, like most people. That's not why I came. I came because a dear friend of mine here in Dallas, um, was uh, 
Well, let's just say the Dallas court systems invited him to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and, uh, and he called me one day and he said, I, don't, I have to go to AA, but I don't want to go by myself. Will you go with me? And I said, sure, I'm not an alcoholic, but I'll go with you. <laughs> I mean, those were my exact words. Right. I do remember that. <laughs> and uh, so we got into the car. We were both living in Dallas at the time. And we got in a car and we drove to Arlington because we, what's what, 20 miles away, something like that, because we didn't want to have anyone seeing us walking into a meeting right. of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? <laughs> and um, uh, we walked into, it was a storefront in a strip shopping center. I don't even know if the meeting's there or not anymore, but... We walked in and I walked in first and uh, his name was Steve. Steve walked in behind me and, and this old man, he must've been 150 years old. He walked up to me and he goes, hi, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. Are you an alcoholic? And I went, oh, I'm not, but he is. (laughs) And I will be forever grateful for um, the very next words that came out of John's mouth. He said, this is a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous for people who have a desire to stop drinking. What I'd like to do is give you this packet. It was a white envelope with flyers and things in it and come back and pick your friend up in an hour if that's okay. And I said, sure. I'm and Steve was fine with it. And, um, so I left and I started driving around and I ended up parking in a parking lot somewhere. It was a hot July summer, July it was actually July of 86. And, uh, and as I'm sitting there in the parking lot with the window rolled down, I, and I was smoking a cigarette. I looked down and I saw that pamphlet sitting on the seat and I thought, hmm, let's take a look. So I reached in and pulled out all the pamphlets that were in there and started rifling through them. And there was a, the pamphlet that I opened up. We actually don't have this pamphlet anymore. It used to be called the 44 questions, but now I think it's called frequently asked questions about AA or something like that. But when I saw the title of the pamphlet, 44 questions, I thought, oh, yay, a test. <laughs> um, so I opened it up and I started because they were all yes or no questions. And I started answering them. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. 42 of 44 questions had my name all over them. Mm-hmm. And I think that was important because that was the first time that the denial began to crack. Before I'd ever walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because of the literature. And I began to say, you know what, maybe this is what's really been going on as my life is apparently been falling apart and I do, and I wasn't willing to admit it. Um, and we ended up going back to a meeting the next week over in, or the next night over in Dallas. And we went for the next seven nights and, uh, uh, and I fell in love instantly. Now I'm not going to say that I fell in love instantly with Alcoholics Anonymous, but I fell in love with what I felt in the room. I fell in love with the smiles. I fell in love with the glimmer in people's eyes. I fell in love with what I felt was the honesty. I wasn't completely willing to admit that I was an alcoholic at that point, but I said it because if I didn't, you might not let me stay, right? Um, But I loved it. And one of the reasons that I think this story is so incredibly important in my life is because On night eight, Steve called me and he said, I don't think I want to go to that meeting anymore. And I said, okay, um, I'm fine with that. Do, can you tell me why? And he goes, yeah, I, I can't go because I have a real problem with the God thing. Mm. 
and I just can't deal with it. And what I find even most interesting about that is, is in his paying job, he was a pianist for a traveling evangelist, (laughs) which is the crazy part, right? I mean, his paycheck came from God, literally. Um, But he said, I can't deal with a God thing. He said, so I'm not going to go. And I said, okay, that's fine. But I hope you don't mind, but I'm still going to go. And he said, I don't care. I've been going ever since. And that man is dead today Mm -hmm. as a result of this disease. And so I will forever credit um, God using Steve um, to get me into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I don't know that I would have made it otherwise. So I want to ask you about something because, uh, so, so let me set this up. We were having a conversation right before this started. And I just wanted to make sure there was nothing that was off limits. I don't like to, you know, bring up stuff on the mic that people, you know, are uncomfortable talking about. I, this is not a gotcha kind of an interview. Um, and you said, no, nothing is off uh, off limits. And then one of the subjects you mentioned, uh, which I find, uh, I guess, interesting, is the fact that you are gay. Mm-hmm. And when I say that I find it interesting, I'm, I'm always curious uh, in terms of what is it like as a gay man coming into Alcoholics Anonymous? Uh, uh, is there any d- differences whatsoever? I'm assuming not, but I would just like your experience in that arena. <laughs> We don't have enough time. Um, yes, there. So my experience is this: I got sober in uh, the group. I got sober in was a, a gay group, a gay and lesbian group in Dallas called Lambda. And um, at that time in the late eighties, the dual anonymity was wonderful. It was. It, I was very, very grateful to be in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous. That also, I didn't have to hide what the other part of my life that at that time I thought was a crucial part of my identity. Right. Well, let me make sure I, that that term dual anonymity. You mean the fact being that, gay and being an alcoholic. Gotcha. Right. And um, and so it was just easy. I could focus on the reason I was there really, which was my alcoholism, as opposed to having to, to be in a a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that wasn't necessarily as accepting or as open and have to be feeling judged for who I am. Because I mean, let's just be clear. It really only takes about three minutes of being with me to get it. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's just the way it is. But but it was, it was, I was terrified. And a lot of that had to do also with the fact that my own internalized homophobia, even at that time, and still today, every now and then. Internalized homophobia. Absolutely. What where is that? The, the shame and guilt that, that I, at moments, feel about that thing, about that part of my life, my sexuality. Um, so, yeah. So it's tough. So um, I hid, I I used the phrase hid in gay AA for a long time um, because I was too afraid to come out of that into uh, normal AA or whatever, non-gay AA, whatever. Um, And once again, this was the late 80s. It was the late 80s. It's not like it is now. It wasn't the 1950s, but it's certainly not today. Correct. But the beautiful part of what the the journey that I've had around all of that is is that and my sponsor 
my current sponsor helped me to remember that he jokingly said to me one day we were having this conversation and he said, you know, Rick, he said, the reality is, is that anytime you walk into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, it becomes a gay meeting of Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous. <laughs> and on some level, he's right. But but it, it also, I've also learned that it is, one, it's not why I'm here. And just like I'm not here for any other outside issues, I'm not here for that. And I come here because I have a hopeless state of mind and body. I didn't know that before I got here, but you guys taught me that. And so um, as a result of what I've learned in the literature and the work that I've done in studying the steps, taking the steps, studying the tradition, studying the concepts, all three legacies, as a result, uh, as a result of the service that I've given back to the fellowship, I've learned that one of my favorite phrases is Alcoholics Anonymous is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field. All are welcome. And because I love myself enough today, I can hold on to that. And I can walk into a room of men in, let's say, a men's meeting. I can walk into a, a room of men in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm just going to assume are all straight. And I don't care. Right. And it just doesn't matter because I'm there for the same reason that they're there. And if they have a problem with it, that's their problem, not mine. Right. Right. So it's, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for a long time. When did you start going to, lack of a better term, non-gay? No, it's just, I'm going to call them straight meetings just for the sake of conversation. When I moved to Nashville. Now, that's something else that I want to point out. When I first got sober in the late 80s, I wasn't told that I could go to other groups. Now, this is this may sound crazy to people today because we're many of us are so used to just going to groups all over the place. But back in those days... Because my home group met seven days a week, had five meetings a day in the same space. I could get my AA in one place. And no one ever said, yeah, go over to the Preston group. Yeah, go over to the Chicago group. No one ever said that. <laughs> so I only stuck in that one group. Um, but when I moved to Nashville, I uh, started going to a group that was a clubhouse, actually, called the Woodbine Club. And I met some of the most amazing people. And it was in that moment that I was be I had begun to learn that if I cut myself off from half of Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever the number is, then I'm cutting myself off from half of a recovery that is mine to have. That's right. Right? Yeah. Do you generally have gay sponsors or straight sponsors or combinations? That's a, such a great question. Um, so I've had, in 32 years, I have had what I would consider four sponsors um, one of them lasted for 16 years. He was gay. The current sponsor that I have now, um, what is I've had for seven years and he is straight and he could care less by the grace of God. Right. Um, I had a woman who was sponsoring me at one point. She was a, a heterosexual woman. And then I had a, my first sponsor or my first couple of like temporary and couple of sponsors in the very, very beginning were gay because they were in my home group. But um, honestly, I would rather have personally, and this is just my personal opinion. I would rather have a straight sponsor, a straight man or, or woman doesn't really matter, but I would rather have a, a heterosexual sponsor than Why? a gay sponsor. Oh God, we don't have enough time. <laughs> um, 
I like having someone who doesn't have to come from the same place that I come from with with the baggage I have about being gay, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so they're more neutral. More neutral. Placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Gotcha. Yes. No, no, I, I, I get it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, and I, I've had one sponsor for like, uh, you know, 31 years now. And, wow. and he is uh you know and he's kind of, he's he's re- he's a self-proclaimed redneck and we <laughs> and we are different in so many ways right. uh, but he's a great guy you know and so he you know so i i enjoy having something a little bit different so to speak well it was it was interesting when i moved ba- i moved back to texas three and a half years ago because i was gone i got sober in 87 in 88 i'm i left texas vowing never to come back to this god <laughs> forsaken state. <laughs> and I did a pretty good job. I was gone for 30 years. Um, but when I moved back three and a half years ago, for I have, after living in New York City for 14 years, um, which couldn't be more opposite, right? Um, I was terrified. I, even with long-term sobriety underneath my belt, I was terrified because I thought, I'm going back to that place that is incredibly conservative, incredible, you know, all of the things that are attached to that. And I, after living 14 years in New York City and six in San Francisco, right? Um, but I knew that the reason I came home was to be closer to my parents. And it was the right choice, whether I was fearful about it or not. Um, and when I walked into the, and I'm not going to mention the name of the group, but when I walked into my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous here in Texas in December of 2016, and the very first man that I see is wearing a, uh, a t-shirt and a hat and I'm not going to say what it said on it because I don't want to go there, but it was very political and it was very opposite of me. That's all I'll say. Okay. And, um, and I thought, oh, dear God, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. If this is what Alcoholics Anonymous is going to be like here in Texas, I'm screwed. Now, interestingly enough, that man and I became close friends. Uh, And I'm just so grateful for that. Um, I was able to release whatever judgment I had. And I, you know, by the grace of God, I'm willing to do four columns today. I'm willing to do the inventory I need to do. Um, And I was having a conversation with another man, a local uh, member of the fellowship here, who he and I could not be more... A disparate on the political spectrum. I mean, literally, he is as far right and I'm as, as far left as we could be from each other, right? Um, but as a result of the spiritual principles that we've both practiced in our life on a daily basis, he and I sat down the other day, just last week, and had a 45-minute conversation on politics, just me and him. But the love that he had for me, the love that I had for him, that I learned, that we learned in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, made that one of the most beautiful conversations we've ever had. And, and it showed me that, it showed me that um, judgment is just such a waste of time. Right. Gosh, that's beautiful, Rick. So, you know, okay, so I'm going in, in, back in my, in my head. I listened Okay, as you know, we've had this on the books for quite some time. Long time, uh, and I th- my guess is your travel schedule actually eased up at the time. But it, but <laughs> when we scheduled this a long time ago, yeah. you know, you you were just booked like way crazy. out, booked crazy. So we finally got together here, but and I'm glad to be your first, your first 
Yes. Back. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so what people don't know, uh, we I'm actually in studio, as I call it, <laughs> which is basically our guest bedroom upstairs. <laughs> we got a couple mics set up, and uh, I haven't had anybody in here to record in person in a long time. Yeah. And uh, Rick and I talked this morning. We just thought, hey, let's just go ahead and get this done. And I'm so glad you're here because I always get better interviews actually when it's in person yeah. versus being you know remote somehow. But anyway, a long time ago, I remember hearing your story i listened to your i think it was a citywide tape yeah it, uh, dallas citywide correct. yeah that that jenny had mm-hmm. provided to me yeah and i don't remember the details but the story stuck out to me there's something about you leaving your com- your apartment complex being in your car i think you were scantily <laughs> oh clothed or yes. something like that i hate this <laughs> So it is, it is, ab- do you want me to tell the yes, story? Yes, yes, okay. I will, yeah. So, because so, it stuck with me for well, months. Well, and, and I guess one of the reasons that I often tell this story is because it's my last drunk. Ah. Um, and I, I don't ever want to forget this night. I don't think I ever will. But um, so, just br- briefly, I was a blackout drinker. Um, as many people who come to the rooms are, I definitely was a blackout drinker. Um, and I, I, uh, also whenever I drank, I lost all control. I lost all morals. I lost all standards. Um, I, you know, I oftentimes I will tell people that, um, I was a lion cheating, stealing, thieving whore <laughs> and the whore part particularly, um, because when, I, when I, you're, you're over there laughing when I was, when I was drunk, I was like, I would just have sex with anything. I didn't care what it was. I didn't care if it was a man. I didn't care if it was a woman. I didn't care if it was a dog. I didn't care nothing. I just wanted to have sex. And, uh, I don't know what, none of your listeners can relate to this, but, um, yes, my last drunk, I was, um, at a bar. I was uh, at a bar here in Dallas, a lovely bar that actually no longer exists. It was called the Hideaway Lounge, which actually produced more alcoholics per capita than any other bar in this city, I think. <laughs> um, but Is that um, based on science? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But so I was at, uh, and I had been playing at, as an uh, uh, entertainer at this club. It was a piano bar. And on my night off, I was sitting in front of the bar at the bar and it was one of those small little kind of neighborhood bars that had a curved bar and it had a, a mirror on the back wall with all the bottles standing up and you could sit there at the at the bar and look at yourself in the mirror right behind the behind the bar and i remember looking at myself in the mirror that night thinking it just doesn't get any better than this <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and what I also have to, I mean, that's the only time that I'll, I'll talk about any outside issues of any kind, but I, that had, the bar had a patio and it was infamous for you'd go out onto the patio and take, participate in other things mm-hmm. and then come back into the bar. And so I had done that and I'd come back in and I was flying high, man. I was feeling no pain. And I was looking in that mirror thinking it just doesn't get any better than this. That was about 10 o'clock that night. The next thing I know, I am standing in the middle of my living room floor in my apartment, completely nude with nothing on but a jock strap. <laughs> now, I don't know about you and if, and if anyone else can relate to this, but 
what I spent a large portion of my life having was a big hole in my soul. And I used alcohol to fill that hole. I used drugs to fill that hole. I used sex to fill that hole. I used money to fill that hole. I I used all kinds of things to fill that hole that was in my soul. And sex was, excuse me, was a really, really great way to do that. So as I was standing in my living room that night, um, all I could think of was get that need met, fill that hole in my soul. And so I, um, there was a, I was living in Oaklawn at the time and I was living not very far from a park called Rivershawn Park. And that park was, it was known for, um, I'd like to say, we'll just call them late night shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'll say. Um, And so all I could think of was I got to get to the park. And so I grabbed my car keys, walked out of my front door in my condo complex that I was living in and walked down three flights of stairs because I was up on the third floor, walked through my apartment complex, got in my car. Um, It was backed in to the parking space. I turned the car on, floored the accelerator came barreling out of the parking lot and the, 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 the connection of the parking lot to the street had a big dip. And so as I came through that dip, I lost control of the wheel and I ran into the curb across the street. Um, because I just, I, I just had, I, I was drunk and I would, whatever. Um, but I slammed the brakes on and the th- only thing I heard was I heard my hubcap pop off. And I, so I threw the car in park and got out, walked around the front of the car. Cause I, I'm thinking I got to find that hubcap. <laughs> now bear in mind, I am basically naked. I have nothing on but a jock strap and I'm walking around and I'm looking around going, where's my hubcap? I got to find my hubcap. And I mean, you know how we do, right? It's, it was so sad. And, um, and I, and I say oftentimes, just like it was out of a movie, I am standing on the sidewalk by my car and I look down the sidewalk and out of the darkness comes this man walking towards me. Um, and as he's getting closer, I recognize that he's carrying my hubcap. And I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking, but he handed me the hubcap. He didn't say one word. I mean, what could he say, right? I am naked and he's had, he's handing me my hubcap. He's had to have seen the whole thing happen. He hands me my hubcap, turns around and walks off. And I think to myself, oh, and, and I had bent the rim on the right front tire and the tire was flat. So I wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So all I could think of was fine out. So I threw the hubcap in the front seat of the car. I got back in the car and on a bent rim, backed the car back up into my uh, parking spot, went upstairs and passed out. The next morning, I woke up remembering nothing, nothing. Got in the shower, uh, put my clothes on, was ready to go to work, walked downstairs to, to go out walk to get in my car to go to work and saw that my right front, uh, that, that, you know, what had happened still not knowing. Um, and all I could do at that moment was just change the flat tire and go to work. I didn't remember anything, mm-hmm. but it was, you want to talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. That was that. And so that kind of prompted you into going to a meeting. Huh? Nope. Oh. No, remember, remember, 
I, at that point, it was, well, it was at that point, it was either that day or the next day that Steve called me and said, I got to go to AA. Will you go with me? I mean, tell me there's not a God, right? Right, right, right. I mean, so I was like, I just remember having that happen. And then I never drank again. Well, I take that back. I came in in July of 86. And I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but I had 30 days of sobriety. I was counting 30 days to August of 86. And when I picked up my 30-day chip at my home group that night, it was a Sunday night, I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I have to go celebrate. So I went out and got drunk. (laughs) I went out and got drunk to celebrate 30 days of sobriety. Now, if that's not insanity, what is? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then from there, and I also think it's important that I share this for your listeners Um, because I know there are other people out there that have experienced this. So from August of 86, I have not had a drink since August of 86. However, my sobriety date is November of 87. And the reason for that is, is because I uh, continued to smoke pot. Mm -hmm. I was doing the marijuana maintenance program. I wasn't drinking, but I would literally get in my car on a way to a six o'clock meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and smoke a joint in the car on the way to the meeting. And I kept a bottle of Visine in my car so that I could pop Visine in my eyes and go into the meeting and no one would ever know, right? Theoretically. So I did that for 16 months, for 16 months. But the beautiful part about that is, is whenever I finally got honest, and I won't go into the story about how it happened, but when I finally did get honest and told my sponsor what was going on, because by the way, I hadn't told my sponsor that I was doing this, (laughs) right? Think about it. Um, on November 17th, 1987, I went to my home group that night and told them that I had been lying to them for a year and a half or for 16 months. And, uh, and so I was was starting my day count again. I'm sure a lot of people came up to me after the meeting that night to tell me, congratulations, you know, whatever, welcome home, welcome back, whatever. I remember two men. The first man came up to me and he said, it took the balls of Mussolini to do what you just did. And I really respect you for that. Now, I think I remember him because we all love to be patted on the back and told how wonderful we are, right? The second man looked me straight in the face and he said, did you think we really didn't know? (laughs) Pot smells. (laughs) Here I am walking into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous repeatedly over and over right, and over right. reeking of marijuana, but right. I've got Visine in my right. eyes, <laughs> so no one's going to know, right? Just But the beautiful part about that is, is that what that group did for that 16 months while I was on that maintenance program, mm-hmm. they loved me, they hugged me, and they told me to keep coming back. And if there was any judgment of any kind on anyone's behalf at that point during that 16 months, I never saw it. I'm sure there was, but I never saw it. Mm. So nice. it was sweet. All right. I want to kind of turn a corner here. Sure. You have a a project uh, that you've been working on. Uh, I believe it's called take the 12.org. Why don't you talk about that a little bit and you know what that's meant to you in sobriety and what it's all about. So I'm very grateful that sponsorship is an incredibly important part of my life, whether it be the sponsorship that I am able to provide to newcomers who walk in the door or whether it's the sponsors that I have had in my life. I believe that the sponsorship is incredibly important. So I have at any given time a handful of sponsees, um, 
some people call them pigeons. I hate that phrase, but um, babies, I've heard them called all kinds of things. But I sponsors or sponsees are one of the things that help me stay sober because they help me stay in this book, mm. right? Because left to my own devices, I mean, let's just face it. The reality is I'm not a reader. I don't like to read. I, in fact, am forced to do it from time to time. But I mean, you can see my poor book has fallen apart yeah. um, because I do believe that a big book that's falling apart is generally owned by someone that's not right. I love that old phrase. So, um, sponsorship has been very important to me. And because I'm, um, have a web design background, I decided, uh, about five years ago, may, and I, the math may be wrong to figure out a step study. Cause I have gone through many types of step studies and tradition studies and concept studies in my time whether it be worksheets or join Charlie or, you know, whatever it happens to be, I've gone through all different kinds of study of our literature and had put together kind of a study of a compilation of all of those that worked for me. And it was what I was using with my sponsees. If I was taking a sponsee through the steps, I would go through and teach them the way I learned it in the various ways that I learned it. And so I built this step study um, through an enormous amount of resources that I didn't create um, that I, it's more of a compilation study than anything. Um, I built this website called take the 12, which is all about taking the 12 steps, taking the 12 traditions and taking the 12 concepts. And so it's take the 12, the numbers one, two, correct. org, And I will put this in the uh, show notes. Uh, and you remind me if I don't, like, absolutely. If it ends up not being there, but, uh, absolutely. yeah, so I'm looking at it right now and, uh, it's really a cool deal. It's got step studies. It's got tradition studies. It's got concept studies. It's got resources. And I have a lot of people that write in to me and ask, you know, do you know where we can find a step study? Uh, do you have any recommendations? And I would definitely go here. This One of the coolest things that I have found because I built this site to be primarily used for my sponsees and for them to take inventory because each of the steps has an inventory attached to it. I believe, I believe in the process of inventory. And so I created online forms for my sponsees to be able to log into the back end mm-hmm. and take the online inventories, but the inventories are on each of the steps. So you can see them even if you can't get logged in. Um, but the cool part about this site has been the amount of people that it's touched. I had no idea when I built it, Um, I was looking at the Google Analytics for the site not long ago, and in the last year, over 15,000 people have been on this site using it um, and consistently using it. I've been getting emails from users. Um, One woman who said that uh, it was, I got an email in December of this past year who said, I have, I have a, a group of women that I sponsor that each year we look at some new non-conference approved tool that can help us expand our, our growth, right. And, and our, our relationship with God. And she said, for the last year, we've been using your site. And I just wanted to reach out and thank you for all of the work that you have done and the service that you've done, because it really has changed my women. And so because I know that it is helping a lot of people, I just, I want to keep making it a resource. Well, hopefully we can bump up those numbers here by talking about it today. I'm Thank sure you. we can. 
All right, so I close it out usually with page 164 of the big book. But before I close it out, is there anything you want to add, anything that's on your heart that you would like the listeners to know? Like, like you know, we prayed before this, before we started, mm-hmm. and my prayer is always that we can lay down something on a recording that can help people in all four corners of the world. Anything else you want to say? If I could tell a newcomer one thing that was the that I believe and this is just one man's experience and one man one member's experience that I believe is the most important thing that a newcomer needs to learn when they first walk into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous it is that alcohol is not your problem it is that there is a spiritual malady. There is a hopeless state of mind and body. There are a set of character defects, pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth, all based in fear, a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity. The fact that I was maladjusted to life in full flight from reality in an outright mental defective, those are the reasons that I drank, not because I liked the taste of alcohol. I liked and it says, it says, in fact, I have my book open to this and wanted to read it from the doctor's opinion. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I like the effect that alcohol gave me because it gave me the ability to not deal with those things. All of the real reasons that I'm an alcoholic. Um, so if I could say one thing, alcohol's not your problem. Stay It's the noise that lives between my left ear and my right ear. Love it, Rick. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Page 164 from the big book says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. And we shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Rick, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Rez, thanks for stopping by so much. Thank you. Oh, Mr. Rick, it was a pleasure spending time with you, my friend. I so much appreciate your vulnerability and the way that you have of articulating your story. And I know the Sober Speak listeners will as well. If you are out there and that episode resonated with you, please take time to pause your device and share it with a friend and or a family member. It may be just what they need to hear today. If you would like to get in touch with Rick or any of the other speakers for that matter, send me an email to John J O H N at soberspeak.com and I will be happy to pass along your information. Now, on to a little bit of a uh, listener feedback. Brad writes in and Brad says, John, your podcasts are simply perfect. Well, I don't know about that, Brad, but I really appreciate the sentiment. Anyway, he says, it helps me understand my issues with drinking and that I should not drink when what I am and that is okay. I've tried treatment programs and basically came out no clearer on the other side than when I started. I was only sober and confused. 
After a pleasant 119 days of sobriety, I thought I could handle it. It was a mistake and I'm working through it. Seeking a new sponsor and looking for my fit. Your podcasts were a huge part of my recent success and I look forward to achieving long-term sobriety one day at a time. I'm 72 hours in and I'm taking things one step at a time. I'm utilizing my focus tools and surely will forward to look forward to more podcasts and support from AA Brad R. Well, Mr. Brad R., it sounds like you are on the right path. Uh, I like that you listen to the podcast. The main thing is get involved with your local AA group and your local AA members. That is, that'll be a, a ton more help. Thank you so much. Kim writes in and Kim says, so John, Monday was a stressful, long Day. Driving home about 8.30 p.m., I realized I was really tense and needed to relax. I said to myself, self, <laughs> what do you need? Laugh out loud. And it dawned on me that being Monday, which is my rest day for running, I had not listened to any sober speak that day. So I plugged in my phone into my stereo right then and there and listen to a partial episode of Gary Kay's soothing Texas drawl. And I felt so much better. You guys have brainwashed me, <laughs> big smiley face. And I need you to get centered and feel right. <laughs> she says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do and for all your guests. And I, I want to say, pause and kind of give a, a a thanks also, Kim, to all the guests who come in here. And I realize that people, for the most part, are not coming in to hear my gibberish. They're coming in here to hear the, the great speakers and the great communicators that I bring in here to hear their story, to hear their experience, strength, and hope. And uh, anyway, Kim goes on. You've given me something I didn't know was missing, John. And then she puts in parentheses, that made me get teary-eyed to type. That's how sincerely I mean it. High fives for everyone. Well, Kim, you made me get teary-eyed there, reading that you got teary-eyed. Uh, very nice. And then she put high, high fives for everyone, uh, five exclamation points, and then three big hands giving a high five. Kim, thank you, Kim. I really do appreciate you uh, writing in. And I'm so, so happy that we can be a part of your journey with you. Um, Jason writes in and Jason says, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. My sobriety date is July 15th, 2006. By the way, I saw Jason's post in the Sober Speak group just uh, this last week, uh, July 15th, uh, uh, talking about his uh, 14 years of sobriety. So let me go ahead and say right now, Jason, congratulations on your 14 years of sobriety. That is, that is absolutely fantastic. 
Nonetheless, he says, my normal meetings have been canceled due to high COVID rates in the area. I just turned 45, and after 12 years of marriage and almost 14 years of sobriety, my wife and I are adopting a baby girl that we have been caring for as foster parents at the end of the month. Let me read that again. After... After 12 years of marriage and almost 14 years of sobriety, my wife and I are adopting a baby girl that we have been caring for as foster parents at the end of the month. Well, God bless you, Jason, and God bless your wife, and God bless your child. Um, That's fantastic. And, you know, it makes me think about the unintended consequences in a positive way regarding Alcoholics Anonymous. That little girl gets to come into a sober home. Anyway, he says, being of service to those whom I interact with is important to me as are carrying AA's recovery principles in all of my affairs. I work in surgery and I find it refreshing that God has found a use for me both in and out of the rooms when it comes to improving the lives of others. Prior to sobriety, being helpful in improving the lives of others was nowhere on my radar. I can relate to that, Jason. I was selfish and I was self-centered to the core of my being. I enjoy your guests and I find your style of cheering the Friday podcast releases very relaxing and enjoyable. I can't specify any favorite speaker in particular since I find something I can relate to with each and every one of them. Those who helped me in my early sobriety told me often that you, that you, or that, excuse me, told me often that you find what you are looking for in life and in others. Man, I believe that, Jason. I sure do. When I seek to find our similarities, I find them. After all, we are all God's kids. Thank you for your service. God bless you, J- God bless you, John, Jason. Well, once again, God bless you, Jason, and your family. Uh, Godspeed to you. Um, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Adriana writes in, and Adriana says, "Hello, John. My name is Adriana, and I recently began listening to your." podcast and comma, I love it, exclamation point. I'm four years sober, but here lately with this COVID going on, I've been struggling because there is no meetings and no church. The podcast has really brought me joy. Please add me to your Facebook group and I would love to stay in touch. Here's my Facebook account, uh, Adriana. Thank you. And so I don't think I said this uh, anywhere either on the beginning of this episode or the end. But once again, if you are listening out there and you think to yourself, self, I would like to be part of that secret Facebook group that John M. is talking about. Well, just send me an email to John, J-O-H-N at silverspeak.com and we will be glad to send you an invite. Joe posted in the secret Facebook group, and we'll end it up with this, and I absolutely loved it. This is a quote from the big book on page 130, and it says, those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness 
of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe He would like us to keep our heads in the cloud with hymns, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. And once again, that's from the big book, page 130, and I absolutely love it. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for signing in, listening in. Remember, keep coming back. It does work if you work it. God bless you. Love you guys. And I think I will be back next week. We do this one week at a time here. Adios.